This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the A&Ps, we take your toughest maintenance questions and we try to solve them. We don't always solve them, but we try <laughs> to solve them. So if you have a question, please reach out to us at podcasts at AOPA.org. If you like the show, make sure to follow and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to get on our email list for our, uh, our monthly newsletter and occasional interesting maintenance stories, the easiest way to do that is to uh, text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and a little uh, email bot will put you on our mailing list. Uh, again, text SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to put yourself on the list. Here we are again. <laughs> Groundhog Day. Right? Ground- oh, no, that was last week. <laughs> that was last week. <laughs> we just watched that movie. <laughs> God. So I wanted to talk about, uh, I have an airplane in the engine, uh, in the avionics shop, having uh, a new engine monitor put in because my old engine monitor didn't cut the mustard. It only recorded two hours of data at a time. And uh, and you had to like do a handstand on one hand to get the data out of the monitor. So it was definitely past its prime. You're not going to mention what kind of monitor that was. It was an old monitor. It was from 2001. They're not even in production anymore, are they? Right. It was not a JPI. This is an experimental. Oh. Is it M- and, MGM? No. No, no not that not one. MG. Okay. No, no. I don't want to make oh, okay. anybody feel bad. They've since upgraded the engine monitor, but when the airplane builder was building the airplane, he bought an engine monitor, and and then by the time he got the engine, uh, the airplane done, it was already five years down the road, and then by the time I got the airplane, it was 20 years down the road. So this thing was a little long in the tooth. So I'm going with a Garmin, and I'm very excited about that. I feel like I'm improving the airplane. But I have to say, I go almost every other day to check on the progress and see how they're doing and what, <laughs> what's going on. And the airplane looks like it's having brain surgery. I mean, the whole panel on that side is out, and all the circuit breakers are lying there, and there's wires everywhere. And all I can think is, how the heck do these guys know what these wires were connected to? I mean, oh, they really don't. Any yeah. time I've ever taken my airplane to an avionics shop, I, I, I always have this feeling it's never going to fly again. When you see it in that condition, <laughs> with, yes. every, with all its guts hanging out, it's like, 
there's no way they're ever going to be able to put this thing back and, together. And this wasn't a certified airplane with beautiful wiring diagrams. There were scribbled wiring diagrams and pinouts and things like that. But they're finding things like, why did he do it this way? Or what is this wiring? <laughs> yeah. How do they do this? I, you know, And I teach electrical and avionics in, in, in A&P school, but... We just do the 4313 by the book stuff. You know, this wire connects to this wire with this kind of terminal and, you know, three grounds to any grounding point. And no offense to the builder because he was very meticulous, but I think the airplane was over-engineered. There was a lot of wiring and a lot of like nice little options and lights and switches and stuff that I'm just afraid that I'm going to try to go flying and I'm not going to have any, you know, gear down and lock lights <laughs> because that was in in this plug and they eliminated this plug and well, it's prepare a frightening yourself. prospect. Well, I'm I'm guessing I'm guessing that they tag a lot of wires when they take it apart. Yeah, there's all kinds of labels on all these and wires. And I'm also guessing that every so often it, it, they get into one of these, I don't know where this wire goes, but let's get out the ohm meter and see if we can figure <laughs> it out mode. Basic skills, yep. yeah. <laughs> but that adds to the labor, right? So, it, yeah, I'm just glad they're doing it and not me. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to say I'm taking my airplane You're glad to they're shop. doing it, but not you until you get the invoice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but it makes me appreciate how much of my time it would have been, and I could never do it as professionally as they're doing it. They're doing a beautiful job. No, you'd be paralyzed by fear. <laughs> I would be paralyzed by fear. You know me too well. <laughs> I I just put uh, a test flute yesterday, a digital autopilot in my Cirrus, and uh, I put in the the Garmin, and it's. Uh, I, I had a little trouble. I was working with the avionics shop doing this, and. Uh, there's a lot of frustration because I'm an old avionics guy. I mean, when, when I left avionics, GPS was a rumor and we were installing IFR Lorand. So those of you that know this stuff know <laughs> how old that is. And I was having a real problem in that the servos are all on a CAN bus. Each servo has power and ground and a CAN bus, which is basically twisted pair of wires. And that's that's it. And I'm from the world of you have 80 pounds of wiring for an autopilot. And when uh, I used to work for a little commuter airline, we had Hadley Page jet streams, not BAE jet streams, but Hadley Page jet streams. And I put in dual audio panels in these two airplanes. They had a single keying audio panel. This is back in the mid early eighties. So all this work was done at night and I was much younger then. And the, Director of maintenance and the president of the company came into the, the hangar one night, just about one o'clock in the morning. So I can only imagine where they had been. And here's this, this 20 year old kid. And I've got these massive wiring harnesses hanging over my shoulders that I had pre-built and I had carried them into the airplane. There's the airplanes gutted. The instrument panels are all gone and I'm sitting on a milk crate in between the, what was the pilot and co-pilot seat, and I'm sort of straddling the center console. And uh, I'm getting ready to lay these harnesses in the airplane. And these two guys came in, they looked at me, and I'm, I don't know, I'm 20 or 21, and I'm the only guy doing this. I've got a week to get it done. This is day two, I think. And I, I looked around, and I don't know that I've ever seen the look of panic on two adult men like I, like I saw that. <laughs> but that's what I'm, I'm used to lots of wires and this mm -hmm. digital autopilot 
basically had two. And uh-huh. I had to call and say, are, are you sure? That, aren't there some more wires that go here? And, no, that's it. Our first question is from Jim, who wants to know how much carbon is too much. Go ahead, Jim. Okay, let me first say that I'm just uh, very honored to be in such a steam company. I mean, you folks, I've been listening to all your uh, your podcasts, and it's uh, it's been amazing. And uh, I've been in aircraft maintenance engaged for 49 years, and I'm still picking up hints and tips from you guys that uh, help me operate my own airplane. So, well, good. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so I have a. a Justin 182, 0470R, you know, good engine, bad induction system, the whole nine yards. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I got an overhaul about 1,100 hours ago, brand new uh, Millennium cylinders. And uh, since then, I've changed two cylinders for exhaust valves, and that's another whole story. I'm not going to do that again after, you know, looking at all the data and, and seeing all the podcasts and uh, obviously lapping valves is the way to go. But in any event, you know, the, the, the oil consumption has climbed steadily over the years. And, and now I'm doing about uh, five hours to one quart. But I am noticing in the filter, there's a lot of carbon. And probably the two cylinder changes were over the last uh, three years. Prior to that, the carbon kept building to the point where I had probably a good full teaspoon of carbon I could get out of the, the filter. Mm-hmm. And I noticed with the cylinder changes, it, it, there's less carbon, but there's still uh, a fair amount. And, and my real question is, can this be harming anything, the carbon itself? I mean, I suspect it's coming from, uh, you know, from the oil control rings, you know, letting the oil get carboned up. But uh, uh, I'm just more concerned, not so much about the oil consumption, but about the, uh, the carbon itself in the filter. Well, the, the carbon itself isn't going to do any damage, but it's indicative of a problem uh, that I, I think it'd be worth expending some effort to, to run down the carbon in the oil. It, I mean, it means basically that oil is getting cooked probably by excessive blow by in, in one or more cylinders. Uh, and it's not the, not the oil control rings that are responsible for that. It's the compression rings. If, if, if uh, a lot of combustion gases are getting by the compression rings in one of the cylinders, then that's going to cook a bunch of oil and carbonize it and wind up in the in the oil filter. And so, and the other the other clue that you had blow by was you said you uh, the oil gets black after oil changes. You said the oil gets black very quickly. That means the blow by products are getting past the the all the rings and getting. Um, into the crankcase, or or the oil is mixing with the combustion gases and getting dirty too quickly. You might also, and you also said it comes out the crankcase vent. That was another indication that you're pressurizing pressurizing the, case. the crankcase, right. right? So all of these symptoms are pointing at the same thing, and the guess is that the culprit is one of the cylinders that isn't aren't the ones you replaced recently. <laughs> <laughs> That would be the so. Whole. I mean, what you really need to do is is uh, compression check and bore scope inspection and see if you can figure out wh- which cylinder is the culprit. And I've been doing that probably about every six months. I mean, when I change the oil at uh, six months, I uh, pretty much do a mini annual on the engine and and look in the cylinders, the bore scope check and uh, compression checks. And compressions are good uh, in the seventies, uh, low seventies. Wow. And uh, the bore scope looks good. Now, a few cylinders, I've noticed some some vertical 
lines, but nothing exaggerated or. Yeah, some vertical scoring is pretty normal. Are you, are you noticing any oil puddling in any of the cylinders? Not really. The plugs are all dry. I, I clean the plugs mm. every six months, and, uh, uh, you know, they seem pretty dry. And uh, uh, I, looking at the heads of the pistons, I don't notice any oil. It would be down at the bottom, like, or in the spark plugs, like you said. I wish my engine was doing just a quart in five hours instead of a quart in less than five hours. <laughs> <laughs> Paul isn't going to say. <laughs> he doesn't want to embarrass himself. But going back to the question about the carbon, Jim, I, Mike's saying that it, it's it's not really harmful. Uh, Mike, is could it possibly get into like um, the vernotherm or the um, anything that would you know prevent things from closing properly, uh, maintaining the carbon oil pressure? Is the carbon is soft. typically very tiny particles and very soft particles, so I. As I said, I, I don't think of the carbon as being as causing any risk, but I do think of it as being symptomatic that, that there's excessive blow by, and then all these other things all seem to confirm that there's, there's excessive blow by. And it's probably, I mean, it's probably not like all the cylinders that are doing that. It's probably just one or maybe ones. two cylinders <laughs> yeah. that are doing that. Yeah. Well, when the carbon breaks loose, the first place it goes is to the oil sump. The okay. second place it goes is to the filter. The filter. So the filter's it's, doing its job. <laughs> filter's doing its job. I, I don't have much. I wouldn't have much concern about that. Well, unless there was so much carbon that it that that it would plug the filter and and put it into bypass. But a yeah, teaspoon isn't going to do that. A, yeah, a teaspoon. And I don't know of any guidance Teaspoon's from Continental <laughs> on on what. How much is too much, or how there's much? There's no is, guidance from Continental. I've never I've seen. Be, I beg Continental to come out with a service bulletin <laughs> like like Homings. You dared and, them yeah. to, and they won't. And, and they they won't do it. You double dog dared them. <laughs> other than tearing into the engine, uh, you know, can I operate this way until some other parameter gets concerning? Or I, th yeah. I think you can. Oil's um, cheap. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You keep monitoring the filter, as Mike was saying. Once it, if it gets totally coated, it could be an issue. the The one thing I'm thinking is that you might want to shorten your oil and filter change interval because that is dirty. that is yeah. a bit of a scary amount. Again, my 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 concern is is that we don't want the filter to get plugged up because mm. if the if there's if the filter gets too plugged up, then then the bypass valve will open and you'll wind up passing unfiltered oil into the into the oil galleries yeah yeah okay and that's and that's good because my big concern like you said was uh like colleen mentioned maybe something getting clogged uh, not so much the vernotherm but i'm thinking of an oil jet inside somewhere yeah. and, and I, I just want to get a feeling for that well um um cylinders are disposable items on an airplane right they're wear items they're bolt on yeah but, you, but you've you've got to figure out which one's the culprit? You don't yeah. want to start pulling cylinders at random. Yeah. So he's borescoping like you should so be. So I, I, you know, I, I think you, you live with the problem, you reduce your oil change interval, and then eventually the culprit cylinder will rear its ugly head because it'll get really, really <laughs> bad. And You'll start seeing oil on the plugs. Yeah. 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 Okay. That sounds like real good advice. Uh, definitely puts my mind at ease a little bit. It's a lot cheaper than changing the cylinders out. <laughs> yeah, we 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 don't like to see cylinders removed before their time. 
No, and I, I'm, after reading some of the stuff, I get paranoid about the the, the bearing press and all that yeah. stuff. Uh, yep. I, I don't want to touch them, you know, as far as removing them goes. Yep. So it's like living with that bad appendix until it really gets bad. <laughs> <laughs> and then go for the surgery. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry. Mine, mine went bad when I was in third grade. Oh, really? Oh, wow. yeah. I still have mine. I still have mine. Yeah. <laughs> that I know I have, of. I haven't had mine for since third grade. <laughs> well, it's, well, well, that was a diversion there. Squirrel. Yeah. Great, great question, Jim. Thanks for calling the doctors here at <laughs> <laughs> the clinic. And I'll keep going my appendix, too. Yeah, keep, keep, keep checking that appendix. Okay. Every 35 hours. Thank you for calling. <laughs> see you, Jim. Bye-bye. See you. Thanks. Our next question is from John, who's wondering if there's any truth in advertising. Go ahead, John. <laughs> it's a good intro. Look, I'll give you a bit of background. I have a 1995 J model Mooney, and I've flown it for about uh, 2,000 hours. Five years ago, I had a, um, uh, an IO360A 3B6 engine fitted in place of the original engine with the dual mag. And when the magneto, first magneto inspection was due, I had one mag replaced with a Surefly electronic ignition. Overall, I'm very happy with the Surefly, but I do wonder whether the aircraft is just a little slower. A couple of times a year, I check the actual TAS by noting the ground speed by flying cardinal directions at 65% power at 7,000 feet. And obviously the the average TAS that I get uh, depends on rigging and how recently I've polished the aeroplane. But before the Surefly, it averaged 153, 155 knots, which is pretty well book numbers. But now it's down about 149, 150. And my question is whether the, the variable ignition timing of the Surefly would reduce the actual power output of the engine. Specifically, if I set 23-inch 2400 RPM, which would normally be 65% power on that engine, am I still actually getting 65% power? Okay, there are two things that come to mind here. You know, w- one thing is the variable timing feature of the Surefly which I don't think would be an issue here because I don't think it kicks in until the manifold pressure is well below 23 inches. If you wondered about that, it would be very easy to, to turn off the variable timing, which is just a dip switch setting on the Surefly and see if it makes any difference. But I don't think it would because uh, I don't think the <laughs> vacuum advance, if you want to call it that, <laughs> kicks in at a manifold pressure as high as 23 inches. What I think is more likely is that the Surefly was not properly timed to the engine. That's This is something we see a lot with the Surefly because the timing procedure is totally different than it is for, for a normal magneto. The Surefly wants to be timed at zero degrees, physically timed at zero degrees before top dead center right with the, where the piston is right at top dead center and and then the the advance is set with the dip switch is not with physical rotation of the surefly and uh, unless mechanics are 
really familiar with the Surefly, they they often mess that up. So that that would be my my first suspicion is that is that the thing is not timed properly. And it needs to be, you need to read the instructions very carefully and make sure that they're followed because they're completely different than timing a, 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 a normal magneto. If you have an engine monitor, one way to kind of check would be to look at your EGTs during these tests before your Surefly install and then look at them afterwards and see if they're higher. Because to follow on what Mike is talking about, the assumption would be that the Surefly would be firing later so that it's not actually happening, it's not contributing to the combustion as it should. So you're basically flying around on one magneto. And that would mean that would cause your EGTs to go up. And and your CHTs to go down. And Just CHTs like mag, go down. So like you're a mag check. Yeah. But yeah, it's like you, doing an in-flight mag this, check. I, I don't know when this installation happened, but you may or may not still have have data from the from before the the thing went yeah, in. Yeah, I definitely yeah. do have that data, but it is very interesting that you mentioned that because I have noticed CHTs in below. Oh. So it, it, that that confirms my suspicion that that the thing was not properly timed, and and we see that a lot with the Surefly, like I said, because the the timing procedure is so radically different than what magnet than what the mechanics have. have are accustomed to doing and have been trained to do. So I, w- I would revisit the timing and make sure that the that, that the timing is done in, in exact accordance with the instructions in, in the in the Surefly uh, manual. It is it is very different. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just different. Yeah, just different. And, and it's not what mechanics are accustomed to. And John, are you on Mooney Space at all? That's the online forum for Mooney. Yeah, I do. I do look at it occasionally, not not frequently. Me too, but I looked at it today. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually did did a search asking about this, and there's a long discussion about performance um, with a Surefly on this engine. Uh, and people reported that they they maybe got a few more knots when they were lean of peak at higher altitudes, but basically their speeds are the same. And they also confirmed that the Surefly doesn't even kick in with the advanced timing until you get above, say, eight thousand feet. So if you're uh, well, reporting, it, it does it doesn't really go with altitude. It no, goes it goes with manifold, manifold pressure. pressure but, but, but they said that the manifold pressure you'd get at eight thousand feet is yeah. about where you'd see it to and, start to and kick in. The, you should get a few more knots out of the Surefly up at altitude where, where the variable timing does kick in, but mm-hmm. you shouldn't really see any difference in airspeed with the manifold pressure above where it, where it kicks in. Right, because it's not doing anything. It, it does have a little hotter spark and stuff, but it probably won't, wouldn't, that, that alone would not make a noticeable change in performance it would be make a noticeable change in, in how well the engine how quickly the engine starts and stuff everybody like said it starts great just like a car is what they um, said so. but but mm-hmm. it's but it's up at, at, at it's at lower manifold pressures which would typically be at higher altitudes but it, the key thing is it's at lower manifold pressures that you should see this the speed advantage but if you're seeing a speed disadvantage then it seems very likely that the, that the mag is not the, the the that the electronic mag is not timed correctly. The surefly is not timed correctly, and it is a pretty bizarre 
No, that's nothing bizarre about it. It's just no. so different. Yeah, you, you hook a little voltage onto a particular pin, and the light comes on. And you rotate number one cylinder to top dead center until the light goes out. It has a half a degree window where the light is extinguished. And this, this little LED is actually on the magneto itself. And so when you get it where the light is extinguished, that's it. But the whole process is on the Surefly uh, So no more flower pot on the no, spinner? Well, not on the Lycoming. <laughs> on a Continental, you still have to find top dead center. Oh, okay. And for yeah. a Surefly, you have to time it on cylinder number one. When, right. I, when I time magnetos on a Continental, I usually time on cylinder number five because it's close to the prop. Um, hmm. oh, you can time on any cylinder you want, but on the Surefly, you have to do it on cylinder number one. And on the Lycoming, you know, you've got that wonderful big flywheel that's marked and no special tools required. With nail polish. With nail, with po nail oh, polish. Oh, nail polish. Oh. <laughs> Works I didn't, great. I didn't know about the nail polish. I then. knew pink was going to come into this. Yeah, it's, it's a little tip. getting in here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it can't be green nail polish. It's got to be. I don't own green nail polish. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I would definitely revisit the timing on the yeah. Surefly. Especially, you know, if, you're, if your CHTs are a little bit lower yeah. and EGTs are higher than they were before, that's that's Sounds a nice like a winner. conversation, uh, com confirmation. Yeah, but that's a good place to start. It's an excellent question, John. Yeah, it is yeah, a great I question. I have the annual coming up. Uh, pretty soon, so we'll we'll <clears throat> double and triple check all of that, and I'll let you know what results. Awesome! Yeah, we cool. like feedback. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the call. Our next question is from Jim, who's doing some belt tightening, maybe post Christmas belt tightening. What's up, Jim? <laughs> well, first of all, it's my first time live, and it's really a terrific opportunity to uh, talk to you people directly. Mine is uh, an issue that's caused me a lot of frustration. The uh, alternator drive belt keeps popping off. Let me uh, give you a little bit of background. The belt has about 140 hours on it, and we believe it to be the correct belt. I've put a, a straight edge on the two pulleys, the drive pulley, the engine drive pulley, and also the alternator pulley. I put a straight edge, and it, it looks like they're in alignment. The alternator was um, overhauled and bearings and brushes were changed. So it'll fly for maybe, if this is a Cessna 182, by the way, it'll fly for mm -hmm. about, uh, oh, maybe uh, 10 or so hours and it flips off. And I am checking the tension on the belt, the tension and the, uh, I push down on the belt in the middle about a half inch. I, you know, I do all of those things, but uh I don't think I've solved the problem. I'm think I don't think I've solved. I don't think I've found the root cause. Well, there you got several options here, and it's really common on the 0470. I don't know why it always decides to happen right after you put a different alternator on, but it seems that it does like to do that. There's the possibility of counterweight issues, but that doesn't make sense that that would happen because you've changed an alternator, except that you have a different balance on the newly installed alternator, but you can get vibrations and oscillations from the pulley. You can also have grooves in the pulley that will make the alternator belt roll. And then when it rolls and twists, then it, it breaks and falls off. The 
engine-driven pulley, or the drive pulley, as we call it, is on a shaft, and that shaft moves forward and aft. And sometimes when that shaft is worn, it will move forward and aft way more than you want it to, or the shaft bearing is worn somewhat, and it will be moving up and down or in and out. As you tighten the belt, the shaft is no longer parallel to the alternator shaft. So that puts the pulley, it doesn't look like it's out of alignment, but it may be just a little bit. Those are just a, a couple of quick items uh, that you can check, but the the pulley would be my, probably the, the low hanging fruit to be looking for, see if you can get an improvement on it. So the, replacing the, it? The drive pulley is, is, uh, is mounted on the starter adapter, right? It's a shaft that comes out of the back of the starter adapter. Yeah, yeah, on yeah. the on the back of the engine. Yeah, left rear. So it has to be replaced in whole with the starter adapter. The pulley is mounted on an extension of the starter adapter shaft gear, if I recall correctly. So it uh, is it can the the free play on that be be checked? Yeah, I mean it's, it's a simple. There's something worn. In yeah, the with the belt adapter. off, you just grab hold of the pulley and push it forward and aft, and see how far it moves. And depending on which version adapter, you can contact uh, Niger Air Parts or one of the other shops that do uh, starter adapter work. Or you can look in the, the Continental Manual and it will tell you what the allowance is. But the other thing that uh, Paul mentioned, which is, uh, is, is uh, definitely a concern on these engines, is the possibility, and it's relatively remote, remote but it's a possibility that that you might have a detuned crankshaft counterweight and and there's you know torsional things going on with the back of the crankshaft and i think probably the best way to rule that out would would be to get somebody with a dynamic prop balance rig to do vibration check um on the engine when it's when it's run up to you know something like cruise power and see if there's an inordinate vibration. You know, I, I used to think that was the silliest answer. Of course, I know now that that's a really a, a good answer because in my mind, I thought, okay, this is a big hunk of aluminum crankcase and all that. And surely this thing isn't moving that much. And I was talking to our friend, Bill Ross, many, many years ago, and he was describing an event where Continental ran one of their engines under a strobe light and, and just took a video of it. And he said, it looked like it was liquid because it Flapping moved. Around. It was just <laughs> moving around. He said, if you ever saw that video, you'd yeah. never fly behind one of these engines again. You just never get in it. So, I read that. Yeah. That's so just I, I, I've seen videos, the stop motion videos of, of, of propellers, uh, aluminum propellers where the blades are, are, you know, have all these standing waves in them and stuff. It's just, it's amazing to watch. So I was really surprised in just searching online that this is a really common problem with a 182. And there's a lot of discussion. I think I saw it on Cessna Flyers or something like that. Cessna, Cessna Flyer Association. And there were suggestions about checking the bearings, checking the play in the pulley. I think what we're saying is do the external things first. You don't want to like split your case because you think maybe your dynamic, you know, uh, your, 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 um, there, there's any kind of um, vibrations inside the engine. Do the stuff you can do outside the engine first, which would be to check the pulley for play in the bearings or in the pulley shafts. You know, the, the thing to think about is you 
you changed an alternator and that caused all this to begin. So the, the counterbalances on the crankshaft, nothing really would have changed with those more than likely. Although, as I said, the, the uh, balance of the different alternator may be responding to the, the existing balance of the engine. So there is a change in play between the two, but just like Colleen said, it's definitely check the easy things first and they're easy to check and they're way less expensive. You can get to the counterbalances by removing the two back cylinders. cylinders yeah. So, so you don't have to necessarily, you know, split the case halves, but way before you get to that point, let's, let's check these other things. There is no um, play side to side on that drive pulley, hmm. but there is a little bit of front and back play, maybe as much as a 32nd of an inch. And I think that a lot of that is probably taken up as the case expands and heat. I think there's intended to be some play. It's not zero. I check. The, no, I there has check to be some that. play. Yeah, there has to be some play. But you want to make sure that it's within the limits. That there, should and be, there are that, limits on that. That should be easy enough to check uh, with the play to the engine case with the thickness gauge. Sure. Yep. Uh, the belt is the correct belt, and and it doesn't show any fraying on the side of the belt, like the like there's something out of line. You know, usually when you look at the belt and there's white, you know, threads showing on the edge of the belt, nothing. And hmm. there's 140 hours on the belt. Uh, so what what brand of belt are you using? Is it a? Let me ask this. It's a V belt. Uh, is it a continuous belt or is it a segmented belt? It's a segmented belt with 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 the segments on the inside, right. and the belt is some uh, product uh, supplied by Continental. I don't know mm -hmm. the, the manufacturer of the belt. I would try as an experiment, try a solid belt, and see what difference that makes. Hmm. Okay. I also saw somebody suggested you check for wear in the pulley's V groove. Right. Yeah, that's what I was talking about with checking the the pulleys. Yep. This would be the drive, the drive pulley. I yeah, I think yeah. so. Because the alternator pulley, the alternator pulley's new. And and the commenter said you can actually take the old pulley to a machine shop and have them reface it to restore the groove face and angle. I've never had that done. I know it's it's very interesting. This was all on the Cessna flyers. Okay, thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Great question, Jim. Yeah, that, that was a new one for me. So very interesting. Good <laughs> well, you're that. a cardinal owner, you know. Never heard of the belt slipping off. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, this Flapping is a, off. <laughs> this is a Sandcast Continental. Issue. Yep, <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you, Jim. Good luck, Jim. Our next question is from David, who is doing some late Christmas shopping. Go ahead, David. That's right. Uh, I recently purchased a Piper Lance Turbo, and I've heard Mike say on the show a couple times he carries a few critical spare parts with him in his 310 and has <laughs> been known to make repairs on the ramp. Uh, I've read his article on the emergency toolbox, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, so my question is, what spare parts would uh, you A&Ps recommend owners have on hand? And more importantly, uh, which of those spare parts would be recommended to keep on board during cross-country flights? 
Now, since sending in the question, I've had a couple of AOG experiences oh. that have uh, started my uh, my go bag of parts. So, <clears throat> for example, I now carry a main tire and tube. I yeah, carry a spare a fuel boost pump. Um, oh, wow. I've got a Piper plug and a jump pack with me, uh, oh, wow. a quart mm-hmm. of oil, and a basic set of tools. But interesting. what else? That must that must have an interesting effect on weight and balance. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have I have two criteria for this, and everybody has a different opinion. And one criteria is you only take along with you things that you're willing to change, and the second one is take along with you things that most shops aren't going to have in stock. Like for if um, used to with in back in the early Cirrus and Columbia days. Nobody kept low-profile tires in stock, so you definitely wanted to take a tire along. Well, nowadays, Behringer wheels, you want to take a, a tubeless tire along with you and, and maybe the special tool for jacking the airplane, that sort of thing. So that's kind of where I start. Yeah, my experience with this is that it's very, very airplane-type specific. You know, my, my first airplane was a Cessna 182, very beloved Cessna 182 that I bought brand new from the Cessna factory in 1968. And um, it was a wonderful airplane, but it it used to go through voltage regulators on a regular basis. Now, this was back in the days when the voltage regulators had vibrating contacts. <laughs> yeah, they weren't Delco <laughs> Remy. You go borrow some off a of Chevy. After the second time that I got stranded and spent a night on a hard bench in an FBO because the voltage regulator had had crapped out and i was waiting for one to be fedexed into me uh, i decided i was going to carry a second voltage regulator a uh, spare voltage regulator so that i you know I, I would be prepared for these failures of course you know the rest of the story the minute i started carrying a spare i never had another voltage regulator failure <laughs> yep. because that's the way it, it kind of works that, it, it, that's what you do yeah the spare yeah. parts radiate a force field somehow <laughs> But you know, now That's I'm flying. That's the logic I'm using behind loading the plane up with all these spare yeah. parts. <laughs> so now, now I'm flying a Cessna 310. The, the voltage regulators never fail; or they're solid state. But the 310 has a habit of of going through vacuum pumps, and the vacuum pumps uh, uh, are are the are the, uh, the the big 400 series vacuum pumps that are that because the airplane has de-icing boots, and they're expensive, and nobody keeps them in stock. So I always carry a spare pump with me and, a, and, and, the, and the special trick wrench that you need to get that one nut that you can't get to with a regular wrench. A chisel and a hammer will do. And, and that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's an important point in terms of carrying tools. The most important tools to carry are the ones that you're not likely to be able to get at, at, your, at your local Ace Hardware store. If you need a number two Phillips screwdriver, you can almost always find one somewhere. But if you need uh, safety wire pliers, that's that's going to be harder. So the most important tools to carry with you are specialty tools that would be hard to procure locally if you had a problem. And the most important spare parts to carry with you are, are ones that have let you down in the past. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget the duct tape. Oh, oh duct, duct tape and tie wraps for sure. So duct call, tape and tie wraps, and duct tape comes in airplane maybe, colors. Maybe, maybe, so. maybe a little JB Weld, you know, while you're at JB it. JB Weld, but, you know. Colleen, what do you what do you carry in your plane? 
You know, I, I went to Alaska and I dragged a vacuum pump the whole way up and back and it never failed. It was high time and I thought that That's that was going to be had spare. cheap insurance. That's right. but, but I did use the duct tape because I put a hole in one of, uh, in my um, tail, one of the um, uh, plastic tips on my tail. Oh. And duct tape came in very handy. And Was it, was it the white. right color? It was white. It looked oh, great. Perfect. So, but I actually, I, I'm guilty. I carry a first aid kit, but I really don't carry anything other than a stubby screwdriver so I can take my cowl off. You, you, do, know, carry... you do know that it is now possible to buy clear duct tape, don't you? Which is... No, I didn't. <laughs> really? If you have to duct tape something that you wouldn't want an FA inspector to notice <laughs> that you duct tape, clear duct tape is the way to go. I don't know. They're pretty but if that's sure a hole, maybe you want the white. <clears throat> Yeah, the white the white works great. But well, yeah. thank you guys uh, very much. I really appreciate the the time you take to share your knowledge with all of us in GA, and uh, really, this is amazing, valuable information to all of us. Great, and th thank you. And as you referenced, um, Mike wrote a great article about this. It's called Traveling Toolkit, and uh, it's it's in his book, uh, Airplane Ownership, Volume 1, but it's also an article that he wrote in AOPA Pilot in July 2017. Yeah, Google And it. we've got a copy reproduced on the Savvy Aviation website under resources. So if people want to read more about Mike's suggestions, they can go there. Thank you for the question. I just fly around and hope nothing breaks, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, David. Thanks, David. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, so we got a great letter that I want to read to everybody. This is from a fan. It says, I don't have a question, but I want to say a big thank you. I have a Beechcraft A36. It's a great airplane with a great engine that has over 1,100 hours. Everything has been running great. Sounds like everything's great so far. And I only consume about a quart of oil every 25 to 30 hours. Oh, oh man. I am jealous. That's, um, uh, I know. I've owned this airplane for just over five years and never had any engine problems. It has lots of power and it does everything I ask. Uh, I have a JPI 930 installed mm -hmm. and I run at Lena Peak while in cruise and I'm very judicious about that. I took my airplane into its usual shop for its annual inspection last week. I've been a bit suspicious that this shop was in the business of finding problems that might not exist. <laughs> but they generally did really good work over the past several years and it was a case of using the Reagan term trust but verify. <laughs> 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 this year they went overboard i got a call and the mechanic told me that all six of the cylinders had flunked the compression check in the oh, mid 30s wow. with one at 15 and that the valves were exhibiting signs of quote stress i was not sure what stress meant either they were burned or they weren't <laughs> stress is a meaningless term replacing six cylinders all at once had me asking lots of questions which oh, is I good, like this good guy. Start. yeah this mm -hmm. is good yeah. i called one of the mechanics at the american bonanza society and asked him some questions then I had a friend send me your recent podcast, quote, compression readings are garbage, which is, a, I love that one. Uh, and that made me very skeptical of the major surgery that my mechanic wanted to do. Yesterday, I took my airplane to a new shop on the field and it was time for a second opinion. They did the same run-up compression check and boroscope inspection. And they called me and said, Jim, you do not need any new cylinders. You have two valves that need to be replaced. That's it. Mm -hmm. So I'm moving forward with those repairs and saving thousands of dollars in the process. Thousands. Well, saying he's got two bad valves but doesn't have to have any cylinders replaced sounds like that shop wants to lap them, which is really which is good. Great. Maybe we're yeah. getting our message. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know how you can you know you know how you can tell uh, mechanics that that are in the business of finding problems where none exist. They have IA after their signature. Oh. <laughs> I, th I thought yeah. you were going to say they job. have they get kickbacks. 
Right. So I have, so you guys are, I mean, this is like meaningful mm-hmm. change oh, here. I mean, this, you know, like, oh, there really is. That, that, that's that's awesome. very heartwarming to, to hear uh, he was an doing activist owner right. like that. Yeah. yeah. And he was listening to his intuition. The airplane had been running fine for years. Why would yeah. all six go wrong? Yeah. It just didn't yeah. make it, any sense. It, and, yeah, I, and, and, I, and I bet, <clears throat> I bet the, the, that first shop did a, did an ice cold compression test probably. Or, or they did the compression chest, uh, chest test. <laughs> With the spark plugs out or something goofy like that. You know? <laughs> oh, look at oh, these Oh, you mean numbers. you're not supposed to take both spark plugs out when e- you do a Even I test. would catch that one. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, that is that is great. And I don't know the two shops, but the mm-hmm. second one was paying attention. That's really well, great. Well, you know, he was really lucky that he had two shops on the field. That's true. Because there's be a lot of airports. There's yeah. one shop on the field. And, and you're stuck. You're yeah. stuck. That's true. You could tow Good. it, right? So, yeah. 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 Well, thanks, Jim. Appreciate it for writing yeah. in. Great That's letter. awesome. Our next question is from Dustin, who's concerned whether all mechanics might be crooked. Good to see you, Dustin. Thanks for <laughs> having is, me. This is dangerous territory you're treading on here. Well, you know, uh, luckily it's virtual, so I don't have to worry about any physical attacks. But uh, proud AOPA member, appreciate what you guys are doing. This, you know, fortunately I can say, although maybe it happened to me and I it was unknown, friend in a pilot's forum posed a question, really kind of asking how people feel or if they know it's happened. Had an engine, his shop was recommending for overhaul, some email communications between him and the director of maintenance, as well as the engine shops directly. So all three of them tied into an email chain, kind of discussing options and and looking at some quotes. One of those shops emailed back the director of maintenance with uh, excluding the pilot owner and offered a $2,000 referral fee for his work. And the director of maintenance, to his credit, was open enough with a pilot to tell him directly, hey, hey, this is what they've offered me and I'm willing to pass it on to you if that's mm-hmm. what you decide. The big questions that came up, you know, first of all, is this a common practice? Secondly, really was how people felt about this. I mean, most of us, maybe we're naive, but we feel like when we go to the shop, we like to be able to trust the DOM or trust the AMP as to what their recommendations are and that they're looking out for our best interests. Yes, it's a business. They got to make money. They got to do well. We understand that. Just like we expect things to be bought at wholesale and, you know, and a markup to retail prices. Mm -hmm. But something like this seemed kind of disturbing to at least some of us in the chats and the forums to say, hey, this, you know, this seems a little more like a bribe or coercion. And especially if the DOM wasn't upfront to tell the pilot owner, it seems like they could be much more likely to maybe steer you towards a shop that might not be the best for what you're looking for. We don't experience that. I have four or five engine shops that I deal with and I don't, maybe, maybe they bribe other shops and not me. Maybe, (laughs) maybe I'm losing out. I don't know. There is a, a very large engine shop that gives a kickback is not the right word. If a rebate incentive, you know, depending on what term you use, it sounds better, right? Kickback sounds underhanded, whereas rebate sounds fair. And, and I never quite figured out why this one shop they'll, they'll give the, the buyer of the engine, meaning the shop a thousand dollar bonus kickback, whatever. 
And I'm thinking, why don't you just have a markup and give a state a wholesale price and a retail price? Because as you say, everyone kind of accepts that. And well, at that's the end effectively of the day, what they're doing. It exactly, except but they don't call it that. <laughs> they don't call well, it. Well, it that. doesn't matter what they call it. It. I mean, look, it's if you buy a part through your shop, you expect them to purchase it at wholesale and sell it to you at retail. That's just the way the world works. Oh, it is. That, that's not and, what I'm and saying. If you, and if you don't want to do that, then you need to purchase it yourself. I mean, we and for parts that that don't have astronomically high prices that's just kind of something that that we accept and for things like engines that do have astronomically high prices you know i always recommend that the that the owner purchase the engine directly and have it drop shipped to the shop which not only eliminates any any sort of wholesale retail business, but it also uh, often allows you to not pay sales tax, which is a big chunk of money on an engine. Sure. Yeah, and, and I'm not disagreeing. I'm just explaining this is how the system usually works. Usually it's we have a wholesale price, that's what we pay, and then we turn around and we add something to it. I will, so we kind of have a little, if you want to know how prices work at, at my shop, if you buy a $50,000 engine in percentages, the markup is going to be very small. We don't make 10%. We don't even make 5% on an engine. If you buy a 56 cent O-ring, by golly, there may be a 200% markup on that. Just to take care of the time it takes Helen to write invoices. If we have a, a local guy come in and wants to buy a bolt or an O-ring or something, we beg them please don't make us write up an invoice because it's going to cost us several dollars to create this invoice for this 56 cent. So part. you give them away. Yeah, sure. <laughs> or we tell them replace it because the reason they don't want to, don't want to buy one from aircraft spruce or whatever is they don't want to pay all those costs. We're like, well, that's fine, but we did. So uh, don't buy it, but replace it someday. Actually, the, the, Paul says, you know, I'll give you the bolt if you buy me lunch. I think that's the <laughs> way too. Yeah. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Paul, do you charge shipping separately for? Yes. You do. So so yeah. it's not like that um, re resale, wholesale thing is, um, uh, it, it includes shipping. It, it's basically covering your time to do the uh, invoicing and, and receive parts and put them in the bins and right. so research what you're shopping for yeah um, and this is i know this isn't quite the question that dustin asked but just kind of and every shop does it a little bit differently we pay a lot of money to have the manuals to have the space to store parts the time it takes to look up all the part numbers that we're going to purchase is not something that we do on the clock so when we sell a part the markup on the part is what pays for all of that all of that overhead dustin was talking about a a two thousand dollar, whatever he called it, fee uh, <laughs> on a forty thousand dollar engine. That's that's five percent, which is mm -hmm. not, not unreasonable for. No, that's not that's not terrible unless engine. there was already a markup. Yeah, and yeah. he got this this kickback. Really, well, that, that the sound, shop would let him that know. That doesn't up front. sound likely. 
Yeah. Well, so that's where some of the concern I think comes in. One is intent. I mean, we're all human beings. And so mm -hmm. unlike our engines, we're not operating and making decisions, you know, just based on pure science. Mm -hmm. And so I think people can be influenced and can be biased. And, and that's a concern. I think the, the thing about the expectation about a markup is you're expecting that's going to come from anybody. So, and part of the issue in this point is that Buying direct from the engine shop certainly is a good option and a consideration for a pilot owner, but when they're not sure who to get the work done from yeah. and they're looking to the A&P for advice, mm -hmm. sure, that's where well, this big question comes yeah. in, I think. But that, that's, how, that's how the A&P is earning his $2,000. Right, but what <laughs> yeah. I would rather see then, if that's the case, is why is one shop, why are you allowing one shop to offer perhaps a bribe and not the others? I would rather than see an honest discussion between. Well, let's the let's pilot not call owner. it a bribe. Let's call it a discount, okay? Because that's what it is, and I, it's very unlikely that only one shop is is offering uh, a, a an FBO discount. It, it's m more likely that all shops are doing it. it. It may be that 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 only this one was visible to you, but this is standard practice in the industry. Really, you think yeah, so, Mike? It, it, yeah, if you, if you market, order an sure. if you order an engine through your mechanic, he will always make a profit on it. He and, should. And if you don't want him to make a profit on it, then then you have to do it yourself. The difference is is the is the mechanic determining what that profit's going to be and adding it to the price. Well, but that's up that's up to the mechanic or the shop. So maybe look at it a little differently. If you need an engine, if you need a new engine, which horrible event that you would actually need a new engine. You can only get a brand new engine from, we'll assume this is a Continental. You can only buy it from Continental through air power. And they don't make a whole lot on each one because they sell a bazillion of them every year. And that's the, that's where everybody buys them. If I buy an engine from air power, I pay the same price as if you buy an engine from air power. The difference comes in is when you need engine work, like an overhaul. You do a, an overhaul by John Jewell or Ram or any of the other shops out there and how they respond. So I would suggest if, if you're going to go that route and have your engine overhauled, go onto the forums and say, where have you guys all done it? Don't just rely on your mechanic because your mechanic, like me, I have three or four engine shops that I deal with. I'll deal with Bill Cunningham in Tulsa and, you know, people that I know, but there are lots of other good engine shops out there. So it's a matter of figuring out which engine shop is going to be the best. And then uh, if you get 10 prices. Nowadays, it's which engine shop has the, the shortest has, backlog. Has the shortest backlog. Like, how quickly uh, can you do this? Oh, well, yeah. you're nine months and you're eight months. I'm going to choose the eight-month guy. So if if all of them come, let's just say they all come out with a, a $40,000 price to you. Does it really matter whether your mechanic makes $2,000 or $5,000 or $2,000 markup with a $3,000 kickback? Is the price is still $40,000 and you've made the decision where it, it comes from. And, and, but I understand what you're saying that it feels different because the shop is getting this kickback or whatever, but yeah. That's Nobody had a concern with the shop making money. The concern yeah. was just, are they more? Are they going to be more influenced to recommend a, a certain shop well, because of, of the money yeah. that they're getting from that yeah. shop? And Most, I guess I, another way to think about it is if you were paying a service 
to advise you on repairs for your for your plane mm-hmm. as it exists. You would expect, since you're paying for that service, you would expect to get unbiased, you know, advice. If you choose to buy the engine through the shop, there's nothing wrong with going to the mechanic and saying, how much are you making on this? I mean, that's a legitimate question. Then if the answer is more than you're comfortable with, there's also nothing wrong with saying, uh, hey, why don't we, can we split the difference? Uh, there's nothing wrong with negotiating. Dustin, thanks for the call. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. Well, that's a wrap on another fun podcast. Did we get things right or did we miss the target on some of these questions? I know the answer to that question. We would love to hear from our listeners. Most importantly, please keep sending us those tricky questions and try to stump us. You can email any and all questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. We'll see you. Bye.